This morning's reading is from 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Dead. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I'm fed up. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and, and strengthened by the, that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have all rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. And they've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. The Lord said, go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. 
And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, have torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehaziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you so much for that reading. I always love it when Geraldine uh, does the reading. I particularly like the sign, fed up, is it this? Was that that fed up? I like that one. (laughs) I think I might use that one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, brilliant. And there's something so um, lovely about seeing it enacted, actually. Um, It captures something of the emotion of the reading. Uh, So thank you so much, Geraldine, for that. it's an emotional passage of scripture, I think, this morning, something which I'm sure we'll all relate to. Um, Let's just pray together before we begin. Father God, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for Elijah. We thank you for these great stories of his life and his ministry. And we thank you that you're the same God. You're the same God today as you were yesterday and you will be tomorrow. And even in the face of the world's difficulties, we proclaim that you are the God of Elijah, you're the God of Moses, you are our God, and your name is Jesus. Amen. Okay, um, well, it's such a brilliant passage of Scripture. Um, I don't know how well you know this story. Um, It's it's the third in a short series that we've been doing um, based on the uh, uh, kind of actions and, and life of Elijah the prophet. And I don't know about you, but when I think of Elijah, I tend to think of him almost like a bit of a superhero. 
Um, my association with Elijah is all of the kind of the miracles, all the amazing things that he does. You know, he's the one who calls down fire. He's the one who raises the dead, um, and he runs faster than a chariot. I don't know if you've noticed that, but there's a moment just before this where he kind of tucks his cloak and kind of super speeds his way um, ahead of a chariot. So it's a bit of a kind of superhero story um, in lots of ways. And alongside Moses, he is an archetypal um, hero of the Old Testament um, and actually a blueprint for the Messiah to come. Um, indeed, you, you'll recall in Matthew 16 that when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? I don't know if you remember this. Who do people say I am? And they say, some say you're John the Baptist and others say Elijah. So there's something about Jesus' ministry that connects with Elijah in the people's minds because that, that's the kind of figure he is. Um, you know, for Israel, the presence and power of Elijah were regarded as signs of the Messiah to come. That's the association. And it's confirmed, if you look in the book of Malachi, at the very end of Malachi in the prophecy there, it prophesies that Elijah will come. Um, so there is a strong connection between Elijah and Messiah um, in, in, the kind of in, in, in the Jewish mind. Um, it explains why John the Baptist's ministry is described as having the spirit and power of Elijah, the spirit and power of Elijah. So spirit and power is definitely something that we associate with Elijah. He is this figure. And alongside Moses, he's a kind of proto-messianic figure in the narrative of God. Um, and you'll remember in the transfiguration in Matthew 17, he's there alongside Moses. So these are the kind of two key kind of power figures that we might associate with um, the Messiah and, and we associate with Jesus. And so it's not surprising if, like me, when you think Elijah, you think power. I don't know if that's what you think, but when I think Elijah, I think power. And then we have chapter 19. And then we have chapter 19. And it presents us with an entirely new view of Elijah, an entirely new view of Elijah. And actually what we see is we see Elijah in a position of weakness. We see Elijah in a position of weakness, and perhaps we might also start to see something of ourselves in Elijah the prophet, this great prophet who was also a human being, who was also a human being. It's interesting to note how quickly the story changes. It was only in chapter 18, something that we studied last week, where Elijah's just won a huge victory. You'll remember, those of you that were with us last week, we were reading about how Elijah challenges all of the Baal prophets to kind of see whose God is greater, and they all try, and it doesn't work, and then Elijah kind of douses the, the sacrifice in water and very publicly kind of calls on the Lord to prove himself, and then the fire comes down, and it's a huge public victory. You'd think he'd be riding high, wouldn't you? It wasn't that long ago that the multitude were falling prostrate on the ground, crying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. You would think that the next part of the story for Elijah would be kind of put his feet up, you know, have a brownie, and, and, be, and be kind of excited about his victory. You'd think that he would do well to think that way. He's also just prophesied that rain will come on this drought-stricken nation, and it came true. He is completely winning at life. He's completely winning at life. He is at the very heart of his ministry, and God is answering his prayers, and everything is happening. And so you would think that Elijah would rest content that the Lord is on his side. And yet, and yet, 
And think of this much like the story of Moses, that even though he just triumphed over Pharaoh, they very quickly find themselves running for their lives. It's a very similar story, isn't it? So even at the height of his powers, he finds himself again pursued and under threat and feeling like he has to run out into the wilderness. So we learn that on on line three. If you've got your Bibles open with me, line three, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He ran for his life. I think this is our first reminder that he's only human. He's only human. You know, his faith, great though it was, only stretches so far because he's human. I find that encouraging. (laughs) His faith only stretches so far because he is human. He is faced with a very real threat, okay? Jezebel, the queen, has already wiped out all of the other prophets. This is no idle threat. When she says, I'm going to kill you, it tends to happen, okay? This is a very, very real threat. She is ruthless, and has a track record of keeping her promises. And so he is under no illusion that his life is in imminent danger. And so I think his decision to run away is completely understandable. I would almost certainly do the same thing. It's completely understandable. It's like, I'm getting out of here. It's a completely human decision, isn't it? Despite the fact that God's literally just called down fire from heaven on his behalf, it's a completely understandable decision decision. It's one of the only times in Elijah's story where he goes somewhere of his own volition rather than because God tells him to go somewhere. There's a a subtle difference. If you track through, it's always God told Elijah to go here, God told Elijah to go there, God told Elijah to go there, and then this one, Elijah decided to scarper. (laughs) I'm getting out of here. And you know what? I'm going to go into the wilderness where no one will find me. You know, and I think for me, I find that incredibly encouraging because I think we all do that. There are times when we all do that, and we take matters into our own hands, and we say, I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. So I find this encouraging. I don't know about you. Even the great Elijah, I find this encouraging. You know, there are times in our lives when we feel as though we have the faith to move mountains, and those times are great. (laughs) And there are times when we feel alone. There are times when we feel alone, and we feel under great threat, wondering if God is even really with us. Even the great Elijah himself, who personally has seen God raise somebody from the dead in response to his prayers, he has doubts about whether he's safe in this moment. Even he. And I find this very comforting. Elijah was afraid that God might not rescue him from evil. And that means it's okay, I think, for you and me to feel that way sometimes too. There is one of the best lines, I think, in the whole of the Bible, which really, really struck me um, when I was preparing for this. I love it. It's, it's in verse 4. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the best. I've had enough, Lord. <laughs> I'm fed up. I'm fed up. I've had enough. I don't know whether you ever find yourself saying something like that to God. I have had enough, Lord. Or maybe we think sometimes that that's a prayer that we're not supposed to pray, or somehow it's inappropriate or invalid to say to God, you know what? I'm fed up. I'm fed up. You know, if the example of the Psalms is anything to go by, these prayers are an essential part of our real lived relationship with our Father. 
He wants to hear from us when we're fed up. It's okay. We can do that. I'm fed up, Lord. Lord, I've had enough of this pandemic. I've had enough of being unemployed. I've had enough of feeling alone. I've had enough of being afraid. I've had enough of working so hard and not seeing any fruits for my labors. I've had enough of doubt. I've had enough of church. It's okay. It's okay. I think we all find ourselves at one time or another feeling this way, and some of us more than most if life is particularly tough. I think it's okay this morning if it's the tenor of our prayer is to gather and say, I've had enough, I'm fed up, I'm tired, I'm done. I'm just going to lie under a bush and go to sleep. It's okay. I believe God actually wants to hear those prayers this morning, if that's your prayer. And I don't think we need to feel guilty about that. How can we maintain a close and personal relationship with our Father if we don't speak to him about what's getting us down? If we're not honest about our feelings, if we don't share our frustrations? I think even the great Elijah sometimes just wanted to curl up under a tree and said, I'm done. And so if that's us this morning, it's okay. It's okay. You're in good company. Even Elijah felt that way. And I love the response in verse 7. I love the response. God doesn't chastise Elijah. He doesn't say, hang on. Like literally a week ago, I called down fire from heaven for you. Like I raised somebody because you, you prayed to me. I raised somebody from the dead and you were right there. Like I'm literally doing all these miracles in your life. Why on earth are you curled up under a tree? What's wrong with you, man? <laughs> like you're Elijah. Like, you should be totally rocking this, and yet here you are, under a tree, hoping to die. He doesn't do that. He probably could, but he doesn't. What does he say? He sends an angel. Oh, I love this line. And the angel says, the journey is too much for you. The journey is too much for you. There is something incredibly freeing. I believe, about accepting that sometimes the journey is too much for us. The journey is too much. You know, we're not invited into God's family because we're super strong. That's not why we're all here, thankfully. Good news, hey? That's not why we're here. We haven't been selected because of our outstanding talents. You know, we're not here because of our gifts or because we have a particular capacity for perseverance. That's not why we're here. We're not some kind of elite sports team. That's not what it means to be the church. The story of Elijah is our story too. Like us, there are times when, like Elijah, the journey is just too much. The journey is too much. And that's because we're human beings. That's because we're human beings. The journey is too much for us because we cannot reach the destination that we've been called to in our own strength. That's why the journey is too much. We cannot do it alone. Even in the strongest and most faithful among us, even if Elijah himself was part of St. Swithin's church, the journey would be too much at times. You know, there's a truth of this in the gospel. It's the very heart of the gospel, actually, isn't it? What does Paul say in Romans 3? No one is righteous, not even one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. It's built into the gospel. We're all fallen human beings. We're all too weak. The journey is too much for us all. It's okay. I'm not trying to depress you this morning. This is good news. 
We're not expected to be able to do the journey alone. It's good news, isn't it? It's okay. We're not expected to do this journey alone. And can I encourage you, if you haven't accepted this truth, that you don't have to be enough. Even Elijah wasn't enough. So, you know, for me and you, it's okay. I think we have to accept that there are times when the journey is too much. And that only in our weakness can we be strong. Can we draw on God's strength? And perhaps this could be a moment this morning where you say to the Father, do you know what, I've had enough, and we invite him to strengthen us for the days ahead. I think that's what we're called to do. And God's promise is that he will walk with us when the journey is too much. He will walk with us when the journey is too much. I mean, look at how he ministers to Elijah here. The angel, something that Hannah said to me this morning, she said, I like to think of the angel as being Jesus. And I was like, oh, yeah, actually, I'm with you. It's like in, in Daniel as well, right? There he is. I'm with you. What does he do? Prepare a meal for him. And as soon as uh, Hannah said that, I, I thought of the breakfast that, that Jesus prepares on the shore for the disciples, you know? Got kind of the hot coals going, and ah, oh, it's just such a lovely image. I am going to be there with you. When it's too much, I'm going to minister to you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to build up your strength. I'm going to rouse you from your exhausted sleep. I'm going to restore you. Notice that he doesn't make the journey any easier. He doesn't remove the problem, the angel of the Lord, but he strengthens Elijah in his hour of need. He meets him in his weakest moment, under the tree, in his exhausted sleep. And Jesus makes the same promise to you and I. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's good news. I think Elijah's decisions, along with his kind of general weakness, also tell us something about our humanity. Um, have a look at where Elijah chooses to go. It's, it's significant. It's important. He decides to seek solace in the place where it all began. He goes back to the Mount Horeb, the mountain of the Lord, which is probably um, another name for Mount Sinai. Okay? Where does he choose to go? He goes back to the mountain where it all began. Okay? It's probably the place where Moses, um, Yahweh appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Um, it's almost certainly the place where Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments, where God met with Moses, almost certainly there, um, where the covenant was established. So if you want to chase this later, Exodus 3 is the burning bush. Exodus 19 and 33 um, is where God meets with Moses um, on Mount Sinai. And there's, a, there's an understandable rationality to the decision of Elijah to go back to that mountain. I'm going to go and power up where it all began. I'm going to go and power it up where it all began. And I want you to notice there's a few little details I really like about this story, about how Elijah's kind of trying to recreate the Moses encounter. So if you've got time for this um, later, it's the kind of thing that I, I find fun. You might tra track this down. If you compare Exodus 33 with this account, you'll see some similarities. So in, in the Exodus story, God um, hides Moses in like a, a crag in the mountain as his presence passes by. I don't know if you all remember that. Um, and actually, Elijah kind of mimics. He goes to the same mountain, goes to a cave. The presence of the Lord passes by. They're parallel accounts. Okay? So Elijah is, I think, trying to kind of stimulate the promise of God's presence from Exodus 33 by going back to where it was first promised. Am I making sense? 
There's a bit of a study here in it that's quite interesting. He's kind of manufacturing the presence of God, I think. He's like, ah, I'm stuck. Where do I go? Well, I'll go back to headquarters. (laughs) I know God will be there, right? Because that's his mountain. And he's done it before. And even Elijah kind of looks back and says, oh, you know, I don't know if Moses ever had these problems. I'm going to go to where Moses started it all off. It makes sense to me. It's a very human thing to do, isn't it? It makes sense to me. Guaranteed presence of God. Let's go there. Um, and, and yeah, there's so much more that I could say about that other than just to say, those of you who want to follow this, there is an irony in this. If you read Exodus 33, when God promises his presence, he's actually promising to go with him away from the mountain. He says, I'll go. Moses says, I'm going to lead the people away, but you're here on the mountain. How is that going to work? And God says, my presence will go with you. So there's an irony there because actually the whole point was to go away from the mountain, not to come back to it. But That's a a subtext for anyone who wants to chase that down. Um, But it's an entirely human way of thinking, isn't it? To go back to the mountain where it all began. You know, sometimes if I'm feeling lonely, if I'm feeling lost, or I'm spiritually dry, I may choose choose a, a, a spiritual place. To seek a spiritual place. A place where I feel there's a kind of guarantee of God's presence. And there's nothing wrong in principle with this. Okay, there's nothing wrong in principle with this. I believe when two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. I believe that's a promise. So I think that's good, right? We can guarantee that Jesus is here with us this morning. Guaranteed. I believe in his promises. He's here. And we also worship in what I call, a, um, what has been called a thin place. It's a kind of Celtic idea. I'm sure some of you have got that idea. A thin place. And the idea is that over the years of people gathering to worship, there's a kind of uh, thinness between heaven and earth. There's something about the place which is somehow more spiritual. And I do believe that's true. And, and we are very blessed, I think, to worship in a place where it's, it's kind of ingrained in the stones of the building. You know, what a great blessing as we, as we sit here this morning. Um, it makes sense to me. And I, I think the mountain is that for Elijah. It's a thin place. It's a place to go. But I think the issue with the Elijah story is that in order to get to the mountain, he's run away from the mission field where he's supposed to be. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's retreated to a comfortably spiritual place, a place where he feels secure in God's presence. But it's too far away from where the action is. He's retreated from his ministry. He's retreated from the front line, completely understandably, but that's what he's done. He's retreated from the front line, which is why God asks him the difficult question, what are you doing here? (laughs) Why are you here? This is not where you're supposed to be. You're not where I need you to be. You're not here for me, Elijah. You're here for you. And I wonder if there's a warning in here for us too this morning. You know, sometimes when life's tough, we might find ourselves retreating from the front lines of where God needs us to be. We might seek out comfortable, familiar places where faith is unchallenged, that we feel that we can get easy access to God's presence. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, for a moment that we shouldn't shelter inside the rock sometimes. Sometimes we need to be in the cave. Sometimes we need to be restored. Sometimes we need to be healed. We must do that. 
There are times when we need to retreat to a holy place and say, I've had enough. Absolutely. But we also need to recognize that too much time in the holy place prevents us from doing what we're meant to do. To be Christ's hands and feet in the world, meeting evil on the front lines, dressed from head to toe in our battle armor. We're called to that too, which I think is the reason behind the question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And look at the way that God deals so graciously and lovingly with Elijah. It's a kind of deliberate, playful inversion, actually, of the Exodus account. If you look at the presence of God and the story, you know, there was the wind and there was the earthquake and there was the fire, and God wasn't in any of those things. And that's kind of what Elijah wants, right? He wants a bit of fire. You know, somebody's on my back, send me some wind, send me some fire. That's what I need right now, God. And actually, it's a really... I almost think humorous, I don't know if that's the right word to say. There's something quite playful about the way God expresses himself here. He kind of, oh, there's the wind, oh no, that's not God. Oh, there's the fire, oh, that's, oh no, that's not God. Hang on, I'm on Moses' mountain, where's the fire? And God comes in the quiet voice. God comes in the quiet voice. It's the voice of grace, it's the voice of compassion. It's a voice of kindness, but it's also redirecting and righteous at the same time. He doesn't say, there, there, Elijah, it's going to be okay. He says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? And he offers Elijah a second opportunity to pour out his anguish and his pain and his disappointment that despite his best efforts, he's still the only one left, that his life is in danger. It reminds me of a parallel moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when an isolated Jesus, he's the only one left awake and he says to the Father, may this cup be taken from me. You know, Elijah isn't just a model of messianic ministry because of his power. It's also because of his weakness. His human weakness. And Jesus, who was both fully God and yet fully man, also experienced moments of weakness and despair, and moments when the gentle whisper of his father was what he needed to help him face the impossible journey that lied ahead. You see the parallel? And so what does God say to Elijah? <laughs> this is the bit that I find most challenging. He picks him up and he dusts him down. And he doesn't say, do you know what? Have a holiday. Stay here for a couple of weeks. I'll send you some bread. Um, it's a nice cave. You deserve a break. It's not what he says. He says, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. Travel the difficult journey. The journey that's too much for you is what he says. Go back the way you came. Accept it's too much for you and yet do it anyway. Because the power and presence of God's Spirit is with you. Go back the way you came. You know, he patches him up, he restores him, and then what does he do? He sends him right back into the fray. Now, I don't know, everybody, what the gentle whisper of the Spirit has for you this morning. If you've come today to worship thinking, I've had enough, or the journey is too much, then you're in the right place. <laughs> you're in the right place. But we must also recognize that we gather 
to hear a gentle whisper that may well nudge us back out the door to say, go back to the front line where God needs his people to operate. You know, thankfully, many of us, we don't face the same threats as Elijah, but I'm sure many of us can relate to his feelings of isolation, his desire for comfort, his need for reassurance, his sense of frustration and overwhelm, his feeling that he is the only one left who seems to care, or he is in a position to speak a lonely truth that people in power do not wish to hear. I'm sure we can all relate to that this morning. But we're called into God's presence, I believe, so that he can minister to us with a gentle whisper this morning to restore our strength and praise the Lord that he meets us in our time of need. But the mission of the Lord is always that we go back out the way we came. Always. That we go back out the way we came. And we enact as his church the great commission in Matthew 28, which is this. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's an impossible task most days, but it is the task that's ahead of us. And then Jesus says to us this morning, and surely I am with you, always, even to the end of the age.